Hi, Malia, alcoholic. Welcome to Tasnua Frank Baker's meeting. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Donna Bevanley, author of Iron Legacy and pioneer in the field of addiction, recovery, trauma. One of the most extremely trauma-informed people that I have ever had the pleasure to know, let alone work with extensively for decades. Um, Dr. Donna Bevanley uh, has uh, been at the forefront for 50 years in the trenches uh, working with folks from all walks of life with trauma and recovery and addiction and uh, mental health. Um, her book, Iron Legacy, is a very, 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 very deep dive into uh, de-rubbling a lot of the trauma stuff. Um, it's certainly informed my recovery and the way that I sponsor and, uh, and my livelihood. Uh, it's impacted the people I've worked with. Dr. Donna Bevanley has a huge ripple effect on this planet, and I cannot even say enough uh, about that. I don't think us humans realize the impact that we have on other people on the planet. And so I know that a lot of people here are like, this didn't work right, or I'm gonna, this isn't whatever, whatever. And we don't hear enough of the, hey, remember me? <laughs> that 26 year old, totally webbed mine that you just didn't know how to, I, I didn't know how to boil water. I burned the pot. <laughs> I didn't know any life skills. I quit drinking, but I didn't know anything else. And through Dr. Donna, I was able to learn how to do things and become a productive member of society. And that's, uh, that's saying a lot. So she's here today to talk about her book, her work, her life's work and take some questions and uh, field some, uh, give us some answers. So please uh, welcome Dr. Donna Bevanley. Thank you, Malia. That was very, very kind of you. And I was thrilled when, when I got your email. I thought this, this woman I haven't seen in 20 years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm really happy to see that that you have continued your journey and are doing so well. Um, I'm Donna, a recovering alcoholic, addict, and you know everything that that encompasses. And I'm going to talk to you about how that happens. Um, I, I said that yesterday was my 45th year in recovery and um, I'm happy about that, really happy about that because uh, 45 years ago, I I thought I was mentally ill. I thought, you know, I've been in psych hospitals. I've been in mental hospitals. I had diagnosis from everything from a mood disorder to anxiety disorder to personality disorder. Uh, a little bit of psychosis thrown in because of the drugs I was using. And, you know, I was, you know, I was a mess. Okay, You might say I was a little bit dysfunctional. Um, I grew up in Utah. I am from original pioneer, Mormon pioneer stock. And so the expectation was perfection only, nothing else will do. 
Um, of course, there's no such thing, but I didn't know that. And so the more I tried, the worse it got. And, you know, it just eventually rolled into the disaster that I had become. So when a friend of mine, Pia, said to me 45 years ago, well, Donna, you know, you're not mentally ill. I was stunned. And I, of course, I didn't believe her because, well, if I'm not mentally ill, tell me what the heck is going on. And she said, you're an alcoholic. You're a drug addict. And if you and if you get in recovery for that, you'll feel better. And I was really stunned by how simple that was. And I said, well, how do you do that? And, you know, I can tell you how to do that. You just stop doing that. Okay, It isn't something you need to hear from a, you know, $400 psychiatrist who probably isn't going to tell you that, by the way. Um, probably haven't asked, by the way. But just stop it. You know, once you stop, you clear up, you get a recovery program, you, you know, whatever you need to do to stay clean and sober is going to start you on the road to recovery. And what I discovered over the years, because, you know, 45 years ago, I got sober. I've been a therapist for 50 years. So that means that for five years, I was working in the field and I can't possibly make amends to every single one of those poor human beings that came into contact with me during those five years. I didn't know. And that was the one area, however, that I wasn't mentally ill when I was working with people who were in my office. Now, I worked in two major hospital emergency room trauma centers. And so it was pretty crazy anyway. I mean, I fit right in. Um, and so, you know, I would I would see in the morning when I'd get to work all hungover and feeling really crappy, there was a line of stretchers in front of my office of drunks who had been in fights, who had, you know, some of them were handcuffed to the side of the, the gurney because they had fought the police or, you know, gotten in a car wreck or whatever. And it was my job to deal with these people. And I'd walk in and I'd just go, oh, my God, all these drunks. <laughs> of course, I was hungover, didn't know I was one. But um, I can't, you know, for 50 years, I've been a therapist. And so doing the math, you know that that was back in, actually, I started doing this kind of work when I was in 1972, so a little over 50 years. And what I discovered right away, and this was not popular back then, by the way, is that why don't, why don't we ask everybody if they're drinking too much, drugging too much, what they're doing when they come into our office, nobody asked those questions back then in mental health, nobody. And, and even though I was very young at the time, it seemed to me that those two were intricately connected. You couldn't really separate the two. Now, I knew from my own experience that 
most of my life up to then had had been about trying to self-medicate. You know, I was in pain all the time and I had enough shame to fill the Great Salt Lake. I mean, I was in, I had so much shame because I thought everything that was happening and everything that had happened in a bad way was my fault. It's like, I made people do bad things to me and to others. And if only I could just get it perfect, if I could get it right, if I could get it, you know, if I could get it, then it would be better. And, you know, so in my own mind, I thought, yeah, there's more to this recovery thing. Because, you know, I got, when I got sober, AA was the place. And uh, so I went and, you know, I walked <laughs> I walked in and a couple old timers who I'm one of those, I guess now, um, walk up and say, what are you doing here? I said, well, uh, I'm an alcoholic and I'm here because I need to get sober. You're not old enough to be an alcoholic. Plus, there were all men. <laughs> I mean, there were really a few women in the meeting, but I was, you know, I felt like, okay, I've screwed this up too. <laughs> it's like, there isn't anything that I can touch or walk into or be that isn't a mess. All right. But I stayed. And, uh, you know, eventually I found somebody that would become a sponsor. I worked the steps. I got together with some of my buddies, um, <clears throat> Ken, Mary, Pia, uh, John. They're all friends of mine. And we all got sober together and we're all pretty young. And we were all asking the same question. Why, what happened to us? Why do we feel this way? And in our little conversational groups, we discovered that we all had pretty severe childhood trauma, that we all thought it was our fault, and that we were all self-medicating the pain, the fear, the sadness, the shame, the guilt that we couldn't live with every day. And so as a result of that, <clears throat> excuse me, as a result of that, we all got together and, you know, long story short, we started Codependence Anonymous, CODA, and we wrote the book, uh, Codependence Anonymous. We all have our stories in there. But those of us who were in mental health at the time of which I was the only one that was in mental health. And, you know, I had my master's degree and I and I started to work with people in a different way. I started to see things in a different way so that when people came to see me in clinics at the time and shortly after I got in private practice because I just couldn't tolerate the clinic thing. You know, I didn't have freedom to ask questions like, how much do you drink? Do you use any kind of drugs? Are you going to Vegas and gambling or, you know, because then we didn't have internet, right? So you couldn't do it online. So are you going to Vegas? Are you, you know, are you acting out in ways that are harmful to you? And, you know, the, the definition of addiction in my world is doing the same thing over again in spite of harmful consequences, right? It's like if I eat lobster and throw up all night 
and feel like hell the next day, do you think I will eat lobster again? No. <laughs> you know, as I go in a restaurant and say, I don't want to be around a lobster and I don't want to eat lobster. And if there's a bisque soup here, is there lobster in it? You know, I do that with, with bell peppers, right? I ate bell peppers, and it might have been the alcohol, but I think it was the bell peppers. <laughs> I ate I ate some bell peppers at a restaurant, and I couldn't get out of the chair fast enough to go throw up. And to this day, every time, you know, it's like friends ask us to dinner, I go to a restaurant, whatever, and say, is there bell peppers in the house? Because if there is, I can't eat it. <laughs> but then I turn around and drink every day and throw up all night and get up the next morning, feel like hell, go to work and start all over again. That's insanity. So addiction is you do the same thing over again in spite of harmful consequences. If there are harmful consequences, stop it. Just stop it now. So that means if you're looking at internet pornography and your spouse or your, you know, your significant other is upset by that and, you know, won't be sexual with you or doesn't want to be around you because of the pornography, you might want to stop that. Or if you keep choosing the same person over and over and over again to be in a relationship, different face, different address, maybe. Stop that. It's like when the behavior creates consequences that are harmful to you or others, stop it. So I like simple, you know, people who know me know this. But she's so simple. <laughs> you know, even if you read my book, Iron Legacy, which is, you know, the whole the whole uh, uh, title is Iron Legacy, Childhood Trauma and Adult Transformation. It just came out on audio, you know, which I am reading most of. Um, that was that was rough stuff, by the way, reading because because it's not your basic self-help book. I'm going to talk about that book for a minute. It's not a basic self-help book. I wrote it. It took me eight years to finish. Uh, I worked every Friday because I was also being a primary therapist. And I was also, you know, raising my son and trying to be in a relationship and live a life. Um, but it took me eight years. Every Friday I was in there. Um, and this book is, like I would say, there's three components. One is some heavy duty research. So if you're looking for something you can just like waltz your way through without doing much, that's not true. This takes time and energy to read. Um, I researched a lot of what I have, the work that I had been doing over the years. So the research is in there. Another piece is, of course, how to take care of yourself and get through this childhood trauma so you feel better, all right? That's the whole point, to feel better, to feel joy, to feel all the feelings, 
and not be afraid and not think that you've got to do something about it. All right. And the other part is like so many people who write books, especially therapists, they use case studies. Well, you know, I had plenty of those case studies because I've seen tens of thousands of people over the years between my workshops and my individual and my groups and all that stuff. But the one I know the best is me. So I'm the case study. <laughs> okay. So there's three aspects. There's the case study. Then there's the research. Then there's what to do. And each part includes that. So if you have been sober long enough, and let me just tell you that, you know, sobriety is so important before you actually do the work. I would say when people would come to me and they'd say, I really want to do my trauma work, I'd say, how long have you been sober and clean? If they didn't say for at least a year, I'd say, go do more work on that first, because this work will rock you to the core. It has to, because that is the core. Now, what is the core? Let me just tell you what codependency is, and that'll be the core, okay? That is the core. But in order to understand what that means, because that word gets has been thrown around so much that it rarely gets used anymore in the right context. Codependence is when adults don't act their age, when adults act like children, all right? It's emotional immaturity. That's what codependence is. So you don't have to go read a book about codependence. When you hear the word codependent, think, oh, that's emotional immaturity. Some grown-up isn't acting their age. That's what it is. And all of us addicts, until we do that work, we when we're acting, when we're trying real hard to act like a grown-up and do grown-up things, sometimes we feel like a fake. They said, we're doing what we see other people do. We're doing what we think is the best thing. But if you want to do it, if you want to act like an adult, if you want to feel like an adult, like when we look at normies that don't have all this crap they're walking that we're walking around with, we think, why can't I do that even sober? Why can't I be like that even sober? This work gets you there. Now, you'll never be a normie, so forget that, okay? But, you know, you can actually supersede what you see normies do. Because after a while, when you've been doing this work, you look at normies and say, they just don't understand their trauma yet. (laughs) Because they look like the people we wanted to emulate, but actually, we don't, okay? Because we notice that, okay, there's no such thing as a child growing up without some kind of trauma is just not possible. Now, childhood is full of joy and laughter and, you know, innocence if you're lucky and, you know, all that. But you're going to have shots. You know, you're going to have visit to the dentist. You might have starvation. You might be homeless. You know, it's like nobody might You know, it's like people might not be beating the hell out of you all the time or sexually abusing you, but but childhood trauma, again, this is a simple thing now, everybody, okay? 
Childhood trauma means that there were times in your young life where you felt really afraid and there was no getting out of it. Nobody was helping you. All right. They might be ignoring you or they might be part of the problem or, you know, they're ignoring you. They're part of the problem. But, and there are so many adults in your life as a child. There can be many ways that you could have been traumatized. And I'm not nitpicking here. I'm talking about, you know, trauma that could have been perpetuated by, you know, priests, hello, um, and teachers and babysitters and nannies. And, you know, there's so, if you look back on your life and ask yourself, how many grownups had access to me? There's a lot. Aunts, uncles, older cousins, older siblings, all kinds of people, next door neighbors. And if they weren't uh, nurturing towards you, you know, giving you time, attention, and energy that helped you become a functional, joyful human being, then, you know, you were probably having trauma. And if you felt afraid around any grown-ups, that was trauma. And why do I say that? Well, let me tell you. There's been empirical evidence over the years that has actually backed up my premises in the my premise in the first place. Some of this empirical evidence has been, you know, has been has come to us through longitudinal studies where children's brains were scanned with a PET scanner. And you can actually see parts of the brain that aren't developing correctly. Okay, that means essentially, and it means this, okay? Listen, this is simple now. There, there are many parts of the brain, but this part, the executive function, where we learn how to act like a grown-up and where we make adult decisions based on facts, okay? That part of the brain right there, is the last part of the brain that is developed. And that happens between about age 25 to 27. And part of that development includes this part right here next to it. That part is where our emotions live. And the part of the brains, part of our brains that are impacted by childhood trauma in, in the development of our brains is the is the relationship between our emotions and our executive function, all right? So what we see on the PT scans is that somebody that's had childhood drama doesn't, they don't have much connection between the emotional part of the brain and the frontal lobe where we make decisions. And so have you ever heard anybody describe you, if you're an addict, as, you know, somebody that acts without thinking, that, you know, acts on their emotions without considering the potential consequences? That's what we're talking about here. Addicts act from their gut. 
you know, they see something afraid and they react. And, you know, if there's pain, they react. And they, you know, we all feel our feelings in a huge way because we don't get maturity in our emotions. And so we end up with diagnoses like anxiety, post-traumatic stress, and that's a real one. Okay, so so are the other ones, but you can you can you can you know take them down. You can understand them from this perspective. But there's anxiety, there's depression, there's you know long long term depression, there's bipolar, there's all these diagnoses that we get hit with, even sober, where it's really post traumatic stress. Um, one of my favorites is ADHD. Now, when I look back on my life, I can see that if they would have had such a thing when I was young, I would have been at the front of the line for ADHD. Sometimes it's even hard for me to do a speech because, oh, there's a rabbit, you know? It's like, oh, there's a chicken. I get distracted. And all people who are addicts, we get distracted. We get distracted from what's going on. And, you know, that's part of our PTSD, post-traumatic stress. It's not because I have ADHD. I probably, you know, there are parts of my brain that are never going to heal from what happened to me when I was a child. It's not good. That's not going to. And that's okay because my frontal lobe, my executive function has been operating in conjunction with my emotions for quite a long time now. But I still get distracted. Not like I used to. Okay. It's like I still don't know how I got through my master's program that far. I got that far before I got sober. And I was distracted all the time. I was in there taking tests when I had been so distracted in class. I didn't know which way was up. All right. But I don't know how I did it. I think it's one of those those uh, things that just happens for you that you can't describe, right? Serendipitous. So the, the developing brain is impacted by childhood trauma, and it doesn't have to be extreme. It just has to be when the child feels fear, their brain freezes. And the development that's happening in the moment freezes. And then when... Your child feels safe again. Everything starts working, but now there's a blank space. It doesn't pick up where it, it doesn't pick up where it left off. It picks up where it would have been had the fear not happened. That's why everybody's gotten some of it. So let me let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Something that makes more sense, maybe, and that is that you know when you are a child, and most of you probably have been in this space before. You learn how to read. And you might learn how to read if you learn between ages about four and maybe eight or nine. If you learn how to read in that window, okay, you'll be able to read. You won't you won't look at a you know at a sign a billboard and say, okay, I better start reading that now. It just is second nature. Now If you didn't learn how to read in that window, 
you can still learn how to read. And probably there are some of you out there that had to go through this. Learn how to read when you're an adult. When you're older, your brain is already has already grown, all right? You could still learn how to do that. It's hard. And you have to think about it. You have to consciously think, okay, I'm reading this now. It never will become second nature. Second nature means you learned how to do it in that window. And that's true for emotional development and psychological development. When our emotional brain is talking to our frontal lobe and giving us really vital information, while what we see and what we hear is also giving us that information and they're talking to each other so that the behavior that comes out is age appropriate. That's what it is. Recovery from childhood trauma means that what you start feeling like an adult, you start acting like an adult, and you actually are in control of your feelings. So first of all, you have to understand what those feelings are. I, and I just focus on the problem feelings, okay? There's a whole mess of feelings. But when you, when you whittle it down, it comes down to anger, that's a toughie, fear, pain, shame, and guilt. Okay? Those are the hard feelings. Those are the ones people drink about, use drugs about, gamble about, use sex about, find, you know, I mean, that's what they do. We do. Now, when there are our own feelings, if we grew up in families that were nurturing, we learned what anger felt like. We learned what, you know, how to deal with it appropriately. The grown-ups around it dealt with it appropriately. So it's not, we're not afraid of it. But if you're in this room, anger was something that scared the crap out of you. And, or maybe not just scared the crap out of you, but maybe someone was in, in the room acting out their anger in a rage. And then maybe somebody was in the room pretending it wasn't happening. So you're a child, you're sitting there going, um, uh, what am I supposed to do here? Not only do do you not know what to do here because no one showed you, no one took the time, attention, and energy to give you the information, but now you're picking up all their anger. And if you don't believe me, that energy is huge. Have you ever walked into a room where people have been fighting and then all of a sudden you walk in the room and they're, oh, God, how are you? It's so good to see you. And you're feeling like, oh, God, this isn't good. <laughs> There's some, you can cut it with a knife here. The longer you stand there, the more that energy is going to hook on you. And then you leave and now you're pissed and you're driving like, you know, a maniac. Or you go home and take it out on somebody else. That's called having no boundaries, by the way. But if you don't believe me that these emotions pack huge amounts of energy, read quantum physics. There's even parts of quantum physics that talks about this energy. So if it's your anger and, and you know, it's like you learn what that is. 
you're not afraid of it anymore. And you are able to identify that when it's your own anger, you feel powerful. It gives you an enormous power and energy. And I will give you an example of that. Um, when, so using myself as an example, I grew up with sexual assault was a daily occurrence. I had no idea that it was, but it was, and it was happening all the time. And it was like, do, 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 just pretending like nothing's going on. And, uh, then when I started working in the ER and I started seeing other people experience this, I was pissed off, angry. I didn't know what that it was part mine too, but I knew I was angry. And so what did I do? I started a rape crisis center in Phoenix, Arizona. I quit the emergency room and started a, a sexual assault center. That's good use of anger. Okay. I mean, people had talked about this. I'd heard people say, oh, you know, we really ought to have advocates for sexual assault. No one ever did anything. But when you get somebody that identifies, even if they don't even know they're identifying with, they feel the anger about that. It come, it can come out as power and energy. If you ever try to start a clinic, okay, uh, you know, like by getting funds from people and writing grants and doing all that kind of, that's not something you do overnight. You've got to keep the energy going. You have to keep moving in order for that to happen. And that gave me a lot of anger. I mean, I was angry and I didn't even understand the, the depth of my anger until I started doing my own work. But I could, I could feel other people's because I had no boundaries. <laughs> and it would tap into my own. So that's anger. Fear, when it's your own fear, you know, and I always tell people, it's like, if you have anxiety, you've got fear. If you've got panic attacks, you've got fear. Once you take that label off and say, well, you know, I don't really have anxiety. I'm just afraid all the time. You say, okay, I'm a grown-up. And what am I afraid of? And if the answer is, I don't know, or, you know, then, you know, that's a problem too. You should know if you're afraid. <laughs> but if you can't, if you're sitting there, like I'm sitting in my office right now, and I'm talking to you, I'm not afraid. But, you know, what do I have to be afraid of? Nothing. But if I'm sitting here in anxiety and fear, then that means I have no boundaries in the moment. And I'm picking up everything else's fear, everybody else's fear. If it's your own fear, if you've got that own your own fear energy, you do something about it. Like if I'm standing in the middle of the street and a fire engine's coming towards me, that would be fear based in reality. All right. That means Donna. You need to get out of the way. That's fear that's based in reality. I always say to people, is your anxiety, your panic, your fear based in reality? That means is there something in your life, in your presence right now that you need to be afraid of? And if somebody tells me, well, you know, I'm afraid of like, maybe we'll have a nuclear war. 
Okay, are we in a nuclear war right now? No. So leave that in the future because guess what? You don't have any control over what happens in the future. You don't have any control over what happens in the next minute. What you have control over is what you say and what you do. That's it. You don't have control over your, over having feelings, but once you recognize what they are and that they're not your enemy and you can do something with them, then you can be in the moment. So, you know, the next one is pain. Pain's one of my favorites. I don't like it. Trust me. It's not something I look for. All right. I'm not that. But pain, when I'm in pain, I know that I'm growing. There is no such thing as growth without pain. You ever heard the term growing pains? Well, that's what it is, people. It's not complicated. And over the years, you know, it took me some time, okay, where I started to realize that, and I'd say to myself, oh, I'm in so much pain right now. I'm so glad. <laughs> because if I'm not growing, I'm probably dead. And I, I kind of like my life, so I, I prefer to stick around for a while. It doesn't mean what's happening that I'm sitting there in great joy and happiness. No, I'm in pain. You know, I just had an experience that was extraordinarily painful emotionally. I don't want to go through that again. But as I was coming out of it, you know, into my own space, my own home, and oh, I'm safe now. I did manage to say, well, I know I'm growing. And for someone that's 72, I felt like that was a pretty good damn deal. I'm growing now. I'm still growing. I don't know what the hell I'm growing about, but I'm sure I'll find out. And here's the trick with pain. You're always, if you're in pain, you're in growth, all right? And there's a trick. It's like we got tricked. It would be great if we knew what we were growing towards, but we never do. Not until we get there. You know, pain is one of those rear view mirror things. Oh, yeah. Oh, now I get it, right? Now I'm here. Now I know what that growth is about. But while I'm in it, I don't get to know. Now, if that pain energy is someone else's, remember, if you don't have boundaries, you're picking up emotional energy all day long. Depression. Depression is that. All right. I have to tell you, you know, there was a, a situation in my life, because I don't talk about my life, is there, you know, there was a situation in my life where I found out that somebody who was in my childhood and my adult life that I loved dearly had betrayed me seriously, had said lies about me, had said bad things about me that weren't true. I mean, there was enough to go around. Trust me, I'm not perfect. So there were things that I did that I wasn't proud of. But these things, it's like, come on. They're just blatant out like outright lies. I felt so much pain about that. And then after kind of when I started feeling better, I thought, you know, that was painful and that's my pain. And what I learned from that is that I can still love this person 
I can still think they're wonderful, but I really need to keep a huge boundary, which for me meant distance, physical distance. I was too close, right? So I need to have some physical distance so I don't feel that anymore. That's what I learned. Good thing. Because now they don't have access to me as much. And when I walk in the room and they're there, I can think, boundary up, Beverly. <laughs> because you're walking in to a bad place. You know, usually families are like that. It's like, when my family's around, boundary up, Beverly. You are walking into the lion's den. That's into, I'm walking into where it all happened. You know, so I'm going I'm going to have Thanksgiving with some of my primary offenders. Okay, boundary up. Got to make sure my, I know who I am. I got to know what I'm feeling, what my reality is, because when I walk in there, I'm going to get messed with. But I can do it now. <laughs> Not only that. But it's kind of like watching TV when I'm watching them. It's like, oh, my God, look at that. That is really fucked up. <laughs> and I don't get, I don't have to feel it. I just, you know, I, and boundaries are something you do in your brain, by the way. It's not something you say out loud. So I'm not sitting there going, boy, you're fucked up. That's a judgment. And it's not my business. And they don't need to know about it. But it keeps me safe. I can sit there and go. Oh, look at you over there trying to, you know, hassle that person right there. That's what you did to me. I'll be dang. Look at that. Interesting. Now, everybody that knows me knows that when I'm saying, well, that's interesting, I'm getting a boundary because that's what my favorite boundary is. It's interesting. I'm just looking at it. I'm not feeling it. It's not my deal. It is none of my business. And break it down more. What they think and feel about me, that's not my business either, unless I have a gun at my head. Because it's really more about them than it is about me all the time. Unless I've done something offensive, said something or done something, those are the only two things that I am responsible and accountable for. What I said, what I do. And unless I've done something or said something that's offensive, it's not my business how you feel about that or what you think about that. Not my business. Kind of like when I came out. <laughs> I wish I had known this when I came out. I was sober when I came out. As gay, by the way. And uh, so I told my big family, my big Mormon family. And, you know, went over about as well as you can expect. <laughs> I was young. And... Uh, Wow, did windows and doors start slamming shut? And some of them opened again. I'm happy to report. It only took 50 years, but hey, you know, I'm still alive. Some of them have stayed shut. People that I loved and cared for, my, some of my cousins that were my best friends and we had a great time, stayed shut. And that... You know, I mean, I still feel a little bit of pain about that, a little bit of sadness. But I used to, when I was around them, say funerals, big ones, weddings, big ones. I stopped going to family reunions. It was too much, you know. 
frontal lobe thinking there. Wow, that's painful. I don't think I'll go there anymore. And But now when I have to be around them, I've got boundaries that you wouldn't believe. And, you know, in my own father's funeral, you'll read this in my book if you read it. When my father died, I, you know, I secretly was going, I just did, glad that's over. And when people were coming through the line, and, you know, some of them were just downright hostile. But I was standing there going, isn't, you know, in my mind now, this is a boundary in my mind. I was going, wow, sucks to be you. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're here in a funeral looking at me, feeling so angry and afraid that you can't function. Wow, that would must really suck. The outside of my body was going, why, thank you for coming. <laughs> Boundaries are the best. Anyway, so so that's what, you know, it's like pain. It's like when you have pain, you're growing. Learn from it. Learn something. Doesn't mean I have to cut myself off. I, I did. I had to for a while. It was just too painful. This huge Mormon family, they're all like, you know, behind each other and all that. Didn't like me anymore. And then there's shame. Shame. In case you don't know what that is. It's when you feel humil you know, humility. When it's your own. When you say, like, I, I am happy now that I am, you know, semi-retired. And so when I don't work, which is several days a week I don't work, I'm in the mountains or out in the desert. And when I go there, I just understand that I am a just a part of this, a teeny tiny little teensy winsy part. But I'm a part of this nature thing. And I feel so bathed in wonder. And that would be humility. It's like I had nothing to do with this but I get to experience it and it is wonderful. When my son was born, it's like, oh my God, look at this. Humility. Yeah, I, I didn't do that. I mean, I did some of the work, right? But I didn't, you know, it's like, I just carried this little creature who became a man. So, but, and here's a big one. If you have any of these feelings, you need to either read my book or, you know, find somebody that knows how to help you. Not just talk about your trauma. Talk, 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 talk about your trauma. Doesn't help in the long run. You still feel this. Worthless. Stupid. Bad inadequate, less than, if you have those feelings, the work has not been done. If you feel, say like, uh, okay, here's a good one. So like I'm married, I've been married for almost 20 years. To someone who tolerates my craziness sometimes. She's very tolerant. 
well, she's a trained cop, you know, it's like they have to be told. <laughs> um, anyway, there are moments when I behave badly, I say something, you know, I, my, my emotions and my, my frontal lobe haven't connected in what's going on. And something falls out of my mouth that I feel ashamed of. <laughs> like, oh, I am so sorry. You know, when I give it, I give it some thought, I think about it, I feel those feelings and recognize, well, I guess I'll never be perfect. I guess I'll never be a Mormon again. Okay, I won't be. But in truth, I just say, I, I said that. It was wrong. It's not true. I was reacting in a bad way. And trust me that when I tell you, I work on it every single day. So she likes me. That's the consequence. I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be accountable. And I can do that. Because I don't, I'm not overwhelmed with rage or panic or despair, depression or worthlessness. So if you have those feelings, that is the core of childhood trauma. Why? Because when you're a child, you can't think through this stuff. Your, your intellect is not mature. Remember, it's not developed until you're 25 to 27 years old. You can't sit there and go, oh, you know, my priest is sexually abusing me. Shame on him. He shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> no, you just think, oh, I'm such a shit. Oh, I'm so bad. God's going to hate me forever. I did something here that caused that. And, you know, I can tell an abused child when I walk in a room, they're sitting there with the head down. They're so ashamed they don't want their face to be seen. And guilt, you know, when I have appropriate guilt, meaning I've just done something that's inappropriate, I know that I've stepped outside my value system because that's not appropriate. In my value system, I say, no, I'm not going to do that. And then I do it because I'm a human being. So then I feel ashamed and then I feel guilty and then I make amends. It's such a gift to be able to do that. And I have lots of gifts because of my sobriety. Now, I found out over the years that not only was I a drug addict and alcoholic, but I was also a gambling addict, and I was also a sex addict, and I was also a love addict, which meant that I was doing behaviors that had harmful consequences. And even if the harmful consequence was just that I felt like shit, that's harmful enough. You know, here's what it is, people. <laughs> I sound like I'm lecturing, not, you know. Okay, so here's what it is. I'm trying not to lecture. This life that we have is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. And I have discovered through my own recovery and the work that I've done with others, that joy and happiness can be had. 
but you have to unload all this other shit that was dumped on you growing up in the family that you did or having the teacher that you did or your next door neighbor. If you lived in any kind of fear or if you don't remember, that's a sign there's a lot there. Now, there are books out there. There's my book, of course, Iron Legacy. And, you know, I think, of course, that my book is the best because I did serious research on this. It's not just, oh, gee, here's what I think. Do it. No, it's researched. It's documented. It's a fact of empirical evidence. And if you wade through that, because it's not an easy read, and then just, you know, let me say this. If you do start that book and you do start to do this work, don't stop. Once you start, make a commitment. I am going to get through this to the end. Because if you do, you feel better. It's hard work. It's not for the faint of heart. But if you have a faint of heart, you might feel better if you do it anyway. Because all kinds of illnesses happen because of this crap. All right? Physical illnesses. Cancer, heart disease. Because you are in fear and shame. Pain that doesn't belong to you. If that emotion is something that's based in reality, you say to yourself, here's how you discover it. I am feeling this emotion. It is because this thing is happening to me. I can do something. Or I'm in process of doing something about it. If you have this emotion and you look around and say, God, there's nothing going on in my life that makes me feel this way. It's someone else's. Get it out of there. Didn't belong to you in the first place. You can't do anything about it. It's like if your friend or your parent gets cancer, God forbid, and you go take their chemo form expecting them to heal. It isn't going to work out. They need their own emotions. Whatever it is that you dump off is going to go into the universe. It'll land where it's supposed to, but you don't need to have it. So I'm sitting here today telling you all of this. And, uh, oh, (laughs) I'm pretty good at identifying when is that hour up? Well, it almost is. (laughs) And, you know, I could go on and on, but I think that it would be better if I took some questions. Because I know you have, like, social time or uh, fellowship time. So, uh, Malia, will you identify who's going to ask the questions? Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate the opportunity I have to be here. It's our pleasure. You're so welcome. And thank you so much for showing up today and showing out and and being yourself. Um, all right, we are going to uh, raise hands and use that raise hand facility and uh, go ahead if you've got some questions for Donna. I have a question for you, Donna. 
actually. All right. The um, with you spoke a lot about childhood trauma. Yes. And um, when we're adults with the carried feelings and all that stuff, would you say that it does, what, what impact does it have as adults if we have already trauma, large, big T, small T kinds of traumas in our history and then mm-hmm. we something happens for an extended period of time and it's really stressful and um, what, what is the uh, neurological ramifications and how does one best uh, be in the solution with these internal boundaries um, mm-hmm. with, with these other feelings that are just everywhere on the planet that we're, you know. Well, life feeling. Is of, yeah, life is full of big traumas, little traumas, okay? And big traumas might be that somebody dies or you know, big traumas might be that you get in a car accident or something like that, where, you know, you are really in a lot, you know, the feelings are going, okay? Now, when you've done the work on your childhood trauma, it's easier to identify your own reality, okay? It's easier to say, oh, I know that I am in pain because of this, but the amount of pain I need to have about that maybe is this much. And when I'm feeling this much, then I need to, you know, unload this much. Now, once I've dealt with my childhood trauma and I've gotten rid of the carried feelings, which are feeling energies that don't belong to me and they're gone, then, you know, I'm, I'm in a better position to know that, okay, I have this much, but if somebody else's is this much more than I'm carrying, it's easier to just like offload it. You know, it's like, I think of things like, this this is what I do. I go, wait a minute. You know, I've got, I know I'm in distress here. I know I'm having pain. I'm having a little bit of anger. You know, the pain is that this is happening. The anger is that this is happening. (laughs) And, you know, and I can say, but I'm feeling like I'm going to bend over, you know, and just, you know, get really crunched up with this. And so I say, well, three-fourths of this doesn't belong to me. So I'm just going to, you know, send it to the universe. It doesn't, it's not my business. This is a boundary, okay? It's mm-hmm. not my business who it belongs to. I could give a rip less, Okay. The only thing I really need to be aware of is that it's not mine. And so if I flip it off, flip, 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 into the universe you go. I trust that the universe, who makes forests and trees and mountains and all that, will probably handle my feelings and somebody else's. All right? So I don't have to have that. Okay. Flick, flick, flick. Trust me. Life still happens. Traumas will occur. They sure do. Right? You can't (laughs) go through life without crap happening to you. It was you that I first learned uh, abuse for a child is anything less than nurturing. Yes, it is. Anything less than nurturing. (laughs) 
Yeah, and then I'm I'm realizing now as you're talking how much I've parroted the. Isn't that interesting that they want to show me that about themselves? Mm-hmm. How many times yes. I've reiterated that and used that very tool and put that for someone in a picture frame or a TV screen. It's like distance boundaries. Hello. Oh, it's not interesting. Mm-hmm. They want to show me that about themselves today. Okay. Yes. That's not about me. And that's what you're thinking, not what you're saying, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Because you're Very just like so. looking at it, like, wow, look at that. You know? Yeah. It gives distance. Or it's like that he who sups with the devil lattes a long spoon. That's boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, um, <laughs> it's not like I have to really work at this memory, but I remember when my father died. And this, you know, young woman, well, not so young, but she, this woman was coming through the reception line. And, you know, back in the day, right after I got sober, I tried to be a Mormon again. I tried for a year. It didn't work. Um, But during that time, I got really active in the church. And one of my jobs was to be a sports for a sports director for the young women. Right. So I coached them in volleyball, basketball and softball. And one of the girls in my, uh, in, in the ward that I was in, her name was Gay. I won't say her last name, but her name was Gay. So she's coming through the reception line because, you know, we all always lived out in the middle of nowhere. So there were big ranches and farms and all that kind of stuff. And she came through the line and I'd know her anywhere, right? And I said, oh, Gay. And she looked at me. And said, my name isn't gay. It's, I can't remember what she said. It was like in my face. And I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? I wonder what that's about. <laughs> you know? And, and I, you know, I, what, I know what it was about. You know, she's gay. She's heavy duty in the closet. Always has been. And she was terrified of me because I'm not. And so she came through there and it was like, she even changed her name. Wow. That's a lot of fear. But I just stood that, there and said, well, thank you for coming. <laughs> that was that's my learning answer. how to deal skillfully with, with yeah, these adult yeah. situations. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Adult skills. All right. I've, I'm sure there's loads more questions. So um, folks go ahead and. Uh, we've got PA Mike up first. Uh, go ahead and unmute yourself, Mike. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Donna, but Dr. Donna Bevan Lee. I'll say it that way. I appreciate it. It's Donna, and I also appreciate it. It's Dr. Um, you're, you. The model that you spoke, up, spoke of has been very helpful uh, for me. Uh, I got sober uh, over 35 years ago and early on in my activity. You know, 22 months in, I attempted suicide and ended up out of the metal. Oh, no, there you go. Which is very much what I heard you speak about today. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been a very, <laughs> the, you talked about the core of the issue. Yes, I had to look at things beyond the fourth and fifth stop that I was totally unaware of that were right. definitely under rocks. There, there, I recently said in on a lecture, uh, a doctor Robert Weiss, and mm-hmm. right. about the myth of codependency, but the way that you describe codependency as the way a PMLD describes yeah. codependency is very fitting 
And I wonder how you, as some, I'm going to get your book just because of you said the amount of research, because his, his premise was there's no research in it. There's no data. Uh, it's not in the DSM three. That's not recognized by uh, insurance companies as a, yeah. uh, uh, you, you can't personality get, disorder yeah, yeah. and so yeah. And, and he he's promoting something else and you know he he named all these books and then said well I know a lot of these authors so I can call them by sure the you. and that's wonderful that he does but I I would hate to someone to be able to miss this work based and what is so what is your feeling or what is your thoughts you are also a PhD um about the DSM-3. He said they're not even doing research on it anymore because it's not a thing. Well, they are actually. Ah. Um, <clears throat> there, you know, the uh, American Psychiatric Association in conjunction with the American Psychological Association worldwide has been doing research on this. And some of it has been also involved the World Health Organization. Okay. So, because I've participated in some of their research. Um, and, you know, they really are looking at how children's developing brains are impacted by childhood trauma. They're not calling it codependence, okay? Codependence got a bad rap. It's a really good word, but it got a bad rap over the years before we had uh, research to back it up. And, you know, I've consulted with the Meadows since for almost 40 years. I mean, I've been a major consult with them and I've worked really closely with Pia, who's one of my really good friends on all of this work, right? So, um, you know, it's like, I'm happy to hear. And, you know, it's like, I was happy when the Meadows was doing it. Then when I created the legacy workshop, it was a way to do it outpatient so that people didn't have to go check themselves in, you know, to a facility in order to do it. Uh, or even, you know, like you don't have to have that diagnosis. As a diagnosis, codependence will never exist. When we tried, we tried really hard to get the uh, American Psychiatric Association to add it to the list of diagnosis under uh, personality disorder. Because it really is, you know, if you look at it, it's a, it's a matter of people acting in an immature way, okay? So, you know, an adult, if they're anger, if they're angry and they're a functional adult, they say, you know, I'm really angry about that. They might even raise their voice. I'm really angry about that, okay? That's fine. And then they say what they're angry at. And they might even say, I'd like you to do it different next time, or I don't want you to do that anymore. Or, you know, it's like they, it may be something that they're angry at that is a social justice issue, right? And so I'm angry about that. And rather than sit here and stew in my anger, I either say, well, there are people doing something about that, and I don't need to be participating in that in this way, but I can do this, right? So... But when you're acting like a child, you're over there throwing a freaking fit or you're grabbing an AR-15 and going and killing people. You know, it's like if you are with, if you're around a small child, which I have a grandchild now and I raised a child and I was a child. I, I kind of know how children behave emotionally when they are in distress. 
And if you're an adult and you act that, then you're acting like a child. And that is codependence, emotional immaturity. I can't act my age. I don't know how to express my anger. Don't know how to express my fear. Don't know how to express my pain or guilt. I'm just, you know, you know I, I react, right? And so, you know, it's like, and let me say that expressing an emotion is not the same as acting it out, all right? If I'm acting it out, I'm punching you in the nose. If I'm acting it out, I'm crawling under the bed because I'm terrified of whatever is monsters in the room or whatever. Or, you know, if I'm acting out my pain, I'm trying to commit suicide. Acting it out is not the same as expressing it. Expressing it is, wow, I'm in a lot of pain right now. I know this is going to pass. I know I'm going to learn a lot. It hurts like hell. (laughs) Right? I think I'll take a walk. Grown up versus child. And and I do think, you know, you could, uh, you know, I think we made a really good uh, argument for adding that to the DSM under personality disorders. But, you know, let's face it. Well, okay, in my opinion, this is a fact, it's just an opinion. I think the DSM is a political piece of work. Okay? Whatever the insurance is going to cover, we're going to include it. If the insurance doesn't cover, it doesn't exist. Like sex addiction. We worked really hard to get sex addiction included in the DSM. Is sex addiction harmful? Oh, let me tell you. (laughs) It's extremely harmful. And, you know, standing in a, you know, I have a patient who's a sex addict and standing in the ICU while he's dying because of a sex addiction. And I don't mean AIDS, although AIDS is a terrible consequence, right? Acting out sexually in ways that will have harmful consequences. You know, it's like we even had it all diagnosed, all the symptoms and all this other stuff. We work year after year to try and get them to accept it. Insurance won't cover it. Why? Here's my opinion. They're all sex addicts acting out with each other. I don't know. But I'll tell you, there's a reason. If insurance won't cover it, there's a reason. And it's usually political. So it's not in the DSM. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So people like me, who's been treating these things for years, they just think we're crazy. You know, it's like, oh, that Donna Bevanley, she's just an, an addict. She thinks everybody's an addict. <laughs> oh, guess why? <laughs> we got so yeah. many addicts out shopping. Hello, Internet. As soon as the Internet happened, it's like, Shopping addiction just took off like crazy. I mean, and now we have internet addiction and gaming addiction and anything that takes us out of our reality with harmful consequences. So I kind That's of a good one there, but yeah. And I know Robert well. You know, it's like he's tried really hard to 
to get, you know, he worked really hard with us to get sex addiction into the DSM. And, you know, he, you know, he's still actively trying to get some of these things like into, into the DSM. And I say, I'm not involved with any of that anymore. I'm semi-retired. Um, I still participate in a way, like in small ways. Why? Because younger people have more energy. <laughs> Damn. You know, it's like younger people have a lot of energy. I have energy, right? But I also have other things in my life that I want to attend to now. And, you know, all those new ideas and new ways of doing things, I think is great when, you know, when it works. He, he did say, I will say this, he did say he stands on the shoulders of those who came before him. So I will give him that much for, for acknowledging that. But yeah, PTSD was what I was actually tra- uh, diagnosed and then treated yes. for. But, yes, when you, when you go to the Meadows or a treatment facility that uses this kind of approach saying, let's get them sober and then let's get them into their, their stuff, you know, it's like, I, I still think it's better if a person is, is in an active addiction that they wait for a year and get stable on their feet before they go, you know, get rocked to the core. Um, But when they do, it's like, that's what all my diagnoses were PTSD. All of them. Yeah. Insurance insurance people probably thought, what is it with this? (laughs) Everybody that walks into our office having PTSD, and that was true. You would recommend that somebody be with a therapist doing this work in that level? Yeah. Yeah, I have my workshops, which somebody could, you know, get about two years work done in a week. But some people, you know, it's like they just wanted to take whatever time they wanted. And I would tell them, well, plan on spending the next two years with me on a regular basis because we can still get through it. And we did. All right. Uh, Zoe's got her hand up. Zoe, would you like to unmute yourself and ask uh, Dr. John a question? Uh, yes, please. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Zoe and I'm an alcoholic addict. And thanks, Malaya, for taking the meeting and everyone else that's doing service in the background. Thank you, Donna. I love I love listening to you and I'm pleased it was recorded. Um, there was two things Um really from my own experience and one was when you talked about illness um, and repressed anger Um, and that really struck a chord with me because there was a 20-year gap in my own life experience before the drinking got out of hand and 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 also in recovery um, and just sort of like a a blink of an eye both times working full-time probably quite stressed and I just like an autoimmune disease come into my body and just took over and I couldn't walk and that happened 20 years apart both very similar but two different mm-hmm. diagnoses um but the other thing that I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about which is also my experience is you talked about um childhood trauma and the memory of it but also you talked about not being able to remember the childhood. I wondered if you could talk about, is there consequences of 
you know, going through life and not not remembering pre seven, say, for instance. Mm -hmm. But but that that's it. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Sure. You know, that's a really good question, and it's one that I you know I try and talk about in my legacy workshops, and you know I talk about it in my book too. And that is that when you don't remember periods of time in your young life, uh, there can be many reasons. One is that. So let me let me give an example. Let's say you are being sexually abused under the age of five, right? That you believe whatever the person that is doing it is telling you, all right? If they say, well, this is really special for us or, you know, this is because you're so special or whatever, you just believe that even though you feel icky, right? It's like the icky is the shame that belongs to the perpetrator, but you feel it because you have no boundaries as a child. You know, children are naturally emotionally immature. Hello, they're you. They're young. Okay. So, so either they don't know what it is. So when somebody asks, you know, when I worked in the emergency room, we had to ask children these things sometimes and say, has anybody been you know, hurting you or whatever, we would ask him in a way that they might understand. They don't know what it was. They couldn't, because our three-year-olds don't come out or four-year-olds don't come out and say, well, you know, I'm being sexually abused by Uncle Dada. Like, well, no, that's just not going to happen. They don't know what it is. And so because they don't know what it is, it's really hard to remember. You know, it's kind of like, I speak fluent English. Hello, I was born and raised in, you know, Utah. So I speak fluent English. Somebody might ask me to, to speak in, say, Russian. They might even tell me, say this in Russian. I wouldn't know. It would be so hard to do. And I might try and put it to my memory, but I have no context for it, <laughs> Right. And so I might come something out, but it's not going to come out in a way that you understand. And so when things happen to children that they have no intellectual conceptual framework for, they don't remember. Mm -hmm. Now, they might remember in their child memory, right? So I will give you this you know, example. This person is long dead. And so I'm not breaking confidentiality. But, you know, she told me that um, she had this weird memory as a young child. She was probably still under the age of two because she was still in a crib. And she remembered that, you know, it was just a weird. This was a therapist, by the way. Okay. So she remembered how her, her grandfather who lived with them would come into her room at night and do this kind of unusual ritual with her to say goodnight. He would come to her through the bars in the crib. He would put her face up to the crib, and then he'd stick his nose in her mouth. Let's all think about that in grown-up terms. Do you really think he was sticking her nose, his nose in her mouth? But she was a child. She didn't know what a penis was. <laughs> she, was only, she was under the age of two. She knew what a nose was. I know this because I had a child and I have a grandchild. It's about the time they start understanding ears and nose and mouth. And so here she was, a therapist herself, telling me that her grandfather is sticking his nose in her mouth. 
And as soon as she said it, she went, oh, my God, that wasn't his nose. But all this time, because it was just kind of logged away there, it was her child memory. And that's that's part of, you know, when people say, oh, that's a repressed memory and they don't really know. Well, they that what comes out might sound goofy, but it's just because they're a child when the memory goes in. When the memory comes out, it's a child memory. As they talk about it, you know, as an adult, then it starts to make sense. Oh, wait, that wasn't a nose. Okay. Uh, so, you know, sometimes as a therapist, when somebody's been telling me they don't remember, they don't have memories of their childhood, but I find out in their adult life that say, they have a pretty severe eating disorder. They don't, eating disorders don't come from to you from out of the blue, okay? Then I can tell that, okay, here's, here's how you eat now, and this is the impact it has. Let's go back and talk about, do you remember eating spaghetti when you were 15? Or, you know, and it's like people then will start to like, it triggers. You know, it's like, oh, I kind of remember a little bit about that. And then just kind of free floating with it. Because, you know, here's the other thing about childhood memories and not being able to retrieve them. What if nothing happened for you? What if nobody was there? Mm -hmm. People were ignoring you, abandoning you emotionally. You didn't exist. That's kind of traumatic. You see? So, and that's, you know, that's just a whole other piece of that trauma altogether. And that would, you know, the way you'd act it out is it's really hard for you to know what your reality is. Nobody was mirroring it for you. Yeah, that was the experience. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I know how important that is because as a mother, but I watched my daughter-in-law with her little, with her little boy, who's two now. It's like she's there and his father's there and grandparents are there. And, you know, he was born during the pandemic. So that's pretty much who his life was for a while. And it's like, and, and if he, you know, if he was starting to cry, it's like somebody would say, oh, you must be feeling sad about this. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yes. <laughs> so that's, but so now he'll have a reality about that. But if no one's there. And you're getting ignored. You're kind of going, you know, you're probably the one going, well, how do you feel about that? I don't know. What do you think about that? I don't know. It's like, I don't know what my reality is. Somebody tell me. (laughs) That's very true. That's a big piece. That's a big piece of the work. Yeah. Work to be done. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Now, what I would say to you, if that's your reality, that you're always saying, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Or I know, but I'm not going to tell you. Um, it's like, if that is your work, I can tell you today, the way you start is simple. I like simple. <laughs> don't say, I don't know ever again. Make yourself know. Yeah. Make yourself know. And if you're saying in your brain, well, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> anyway, it's not going to hurt you. 
but Thank it you. will start your reality will get better focus Thank you. Thank you, Zoe. Angela, you have your hand up. If you could unmute yourself and ask Dr. John a question. Thank you. Um, hi. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Donna. Um, I was sent by a mentor. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. And um, my father was, and my children are, my husband was, who's dead now, whatever. But I was sent to a rape crisis center by mental health, and I didn't know why. I said, why are you sending me there? She said, just call and make an appointment. It was a rape crisis center. And I says, why? She goes, just call. I says, well, can I give them your name? She says, yes. I says, so I phoned her. I says, the mental health person, I was there for six weeks outpatient. She's given me this card that I'm supposed to call you, and I don't know why. Well, over three years, and it stopped at three years because the government cut the funding. But slowly, 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 over time, I kept talking. And she never flinched. She ne I never felt judged. I, and, you know, and, and I just felt safe. And it was a warm environment. It was like a home, her office. And I kept talking, but I kept talking. She'd give me words. That's sexual abuse. That's sexual assault. That's emotional abuse. That's physical abuse. That's fun. And she would give me words. And I went, oh, and then I would talk, right? I would talk. And I said, I have so much rage. Like I can, I would, I can, in a split second, I can go for somebody's throat. And at the same time, murderous rage or suicidal rage. It's like an mm -hmm. extreme. Anyway, um, she one day, I said, I'm so angry. She drew a circle on the board and she drew lines on it like a sun, like rays. And she put down all the people around it, names on it. And in the middle in the circle, she put anger. Mm -hmm. And about the children, um, she told me, she says, Angela, children don't have the words. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I thought as a little child, my picture of God was an old white man in the sky with a long beard and a Jesus who had perfect hands and feet manicured. And I thought, well, he's a carpenter, you know, and then the ghost <laughs> in the shape of him. This is what I had in my mind as a child. And this old man in the sky was keeping notes of me, right? Every time I did something wrong, you see. But then what I learned was. A child doesn't have, I, I, these things are coming to me. I just pray for the power of wisdom to, to give me strength. But because I'm in so much pain and I just ask for strength. But anyway, um, if you give a child, when I, I remember years ago, you know, therapists, they would, they were giving people an, and they say, draw, just draw, whatever. And they will draw the truth. Well, my son, when he was five years old, he had showed me a picture of me and it was my round face and he had a crack right here. You see that's that, you see, because anger, you see that he drew it. You see a child will draw what they, what is in their mind. Like you mentioned, you know, the nose and everything else. Well, I have never had a childhood, you know, I thought about that. 
I have never had a childhood. I have never been innocent. Mm-hmm. Ever. I was sexually abused by a doctor, but I only had one memory. And as I was in this therapy, I would remember more and I remember more. And back in the day, you remember when they put that stuff over your face to, to well, that's all I remember was that. And I asked my mom, why did he do what he did? And she managed She She said, there was something wrong with your urine, right? Mm-hmm. But you see, they, he, he manipulated my, anyway, I've had multifaceted abuse. And, and the reason, the, the, I wrote down um, children trust. I know mm-hmm. what dissociation is right now because an addictions therapist who had recovered in alcoholism, he was a man of indigenous descent. And he said to me, Angela, how do you feel about the word powerless? I said, angry. And he goes, and how does anger make you feel? I said, strong. Mm-hmm. And I told him that I raged at my mother for two hours. And then I looked up and he goes, you're dissociating. You're dissociating. So I, what, all I was going to ask you was, what's the name of your book? And where can I get this recording? recording? <clears throat> and there's also the drug of success. The drug mm-hmm. of success. Like the psychiatrist, you know, making a whole bunch of money and whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, yeah, um, I'm just living a minute at a time, getting through the days, minute at a time. I'm nine months. I, he told me that same therapy. She said to me, Angela, it's better to drink than to kill yourself. So alcohol actually sure. kept me alive, except yeah. it wants to kill me. It wants to kill me. But I know yeah. that I know like I, I, it's almost nine months and I, I'm still recovering from nine months ago, from eight months ago. Yeah. So I know in my heart of hearts, I pick up again, I ain't coming back. I mean, I want, I tried going out a window. I went down to a bridge. I went and sat beside a railway track. So anyway, um, I would like if somebody would put in the chat the name of your book and how I could get this recording. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, I'm, and I'm addicted to the computer. I started it two mm-hmm. years ago, see a computer addiction. So anyway, um, I guess I'm feeling, I don't know if it's the right word, but the same counselor goes, he said, but both feeling validated. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the hell that means, but maybe, maybe what you're saying is, maybe this is what validation feels like. I don't know. I don't know. Well, let me tell you, man, I got a Miriam Webster's dictionary and it's mm-hmm. falling apart. And I only have, I barely got out of high school, man. I said, I got to get the hell out of school so I can get a job so I can yeah. drink. That was my goal. But apparently, I, I, I'm, I'm intelligent, but I didn't know that. But anyway, whatever. So, well, I, so Angela, and, and I'm very, very, very few speakers have my attention, but my full attention. And you are one of them. So anyway. Well, thank you. And I, I just want to share with you, Angela, that so my book, Iron Legacy, Childhood Trauma and Adult Transformation, but I also have a, have a, come on, Donna. <laughs> a website. A website. A <laughs> I have a website and, and, you know, I just, I just lost it there for a second. Um, well, if, Mark, if put it in the chat. It's drdonnabevanlee.com. Dr.donnabevanlee.com. It's in the chat. I'm sure and that I'm not the only one who wants this. I'm yeah. really sure. And and uh, and uh, 
Oh, come on now, help me with this, Malia. It's a weekly thing I'm doing. Podcast. Podcast. Thank you very much. I don't know why. I got I you. Because I'm 72, <laughs> maybe. But so I have a podcast, and it's on the channel is Experience of the Soul. But you can also get to the podcast from my website at, doc, at DonnaBevanley.com or doctor, DrDonnaBevanley.com. But it's DonnaBevanley.com, and you can get to my website. And I've also, you know, blogged a lot on all this trauma stuff. Lots of blogs. Lots, Lots of blogging of blogs. available. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, and so, you know, but but I was saying that the... the um, the uh, podcast might be helpful because I spend, you know, the first year of the podcast weekly going through, you know, pieces of the book. And so if you're reading the book, it might be, you know, it's like you can also follow on the podcast. Um, but so, and, and I want to support you in this, Angela, because you know what, what I was for you with first is getting that sobriety under your belt first, because when you go into this, as you well know, uh, there's like, it kind of rocked you to the core and you want to be kind of stable. So you don't go out and drink again. Cause this, all the stuff that comes out in this work is the reason people drink in the first place. So when you go back and revisit it, you will have a lot of feelings about it, but remember you've already been through it. Now it's just memories and you will have feelings come up about it, but they won't kill you. They won't hurt you. They're your friend. Okay. Good stuff. All right. Yeah, it's tough. Okay. Uh, Lizzie, you are up next. If you could unmute yourself. Thank you. Oh, hi. Hi. Oh, it's been amazing. I'm so glad I came on, um, Donna. Um, thank you for taking um, the meeting. Uh, is it me, me? How do I say your name? Melia, is it? Malia. Yep, got it. Malia. No. Oh, anyway. Yeah, Donna, yeah sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I don't know where to start, really, but um really i'm um i'm coming up to 60 and i just still feel so childlike but um i was born in dublin and um my mum was in a very abusive marriage and i was the fifth child to be born into a, a, a very abusive marriage and she moved to england and we had to separate you were only allowed three children in um a, 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 a woman's refuge and um, I was six weeks old and stayed there till I was nearly four when a priest got us um, a basement flat. And um, I think, is that why I'm so traumatised? I never done very well in school because uh, I just felt different and I felt like, I don't know, I don't know. There's a hole in, in my soul. Yeah. There's something missing. And... Um, yeah. Yeah. Can I just say one thing to you, Lizzie? <laughs> While you're talking, yes. I was, you know, my 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 therapeutic brain's going. And uh, so what I'd like to su suggest to you is that if you're the last, the fifth child of a woman who's in an abusive marriage, um, 
there wasn't anything left for you as a child. Uh, you, you were probably treated like the family pet. Feed it, water it, right? But there's nothing else there. Raising children is labor intensive. That means that if you're doing a good job, you're spending time, attention, and energy with them when they need it, yeah. not when you feel like giving it necessarily. And so, if, so you know, it's like having better mother myself, that takes a lot of time. So tell me how five children are being given that time, attention, and energy they need when you're fearing for your life. Yeah. Not much yeah. left. And if you're no. the youngest, nothing left. And so, you know, it's like when you say, I just don't know, I just don't know. It's kind of like when you're saying, I just don't know, I just don't know. It's that, it's that you're one of your big issues and one of the, what we call codependency issue is not knowing your reality. There wasn't anybody there marrying it back to you. And yeah. so you're 60 and you feel like a child is because you never had a chance to really mature that way. You can do it. This work allows you to do that. Yeah. So yeah, you can I need reclaim to yourself. It's like yeah. I'm an adult I woman. need to know who I am. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's yeah. why this work is so valuable is that you can actually start to reclaim yourself and identify. Yeah. It was like what I was telling, you know, one of the other women here is like, here's one of the things you can do right now. Never say, I don't know. When somebody asks you about yourself, are you hungry? Are you tired? Are you lonely? Do you want to go with me to the movie? Don't say, I don't know. Just don't say it. Because that starts to give you the opportunity of knowing yourself. It's simple. That part is simple. There's always a behavior you can do for each one of those issues. And this one's a big one. It's like, just don't say, I don't know. And don't say in your brain, I don't know, but I'm not going to tell you. Say it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, because um, you know that has affected the whole of my life. Because I, Absolutely. I, um, I was labelled really in school uh, uh, and put in a remedial class. So that straight away put a label on, like you were, you were, you know, stupid, thick, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm not stupid, and I'm not thick. Yeah. I might not. You were, you, know, be you were very neglected. You were yeah. neglected and abandoned. Yeah, Children although my poor mum, I mean, you know, my mum my mum gave us everything she could, but, I mean, it was in the 60s, and it was hard yep. for her, yep. you know, so, yeah. Well, you know, and, and when you're doing this work, one of the things I want to stress is that we all know that with a few rare exceptions, parents do the best they can. Yeah. They, they do the best that they can. They're not out to hurt you. Right. No, unless they really are. Some of them really are. But, you know, most of the time they're doing the best they can. That's not a good excuse. 
you know, most adults know that if I'm doing that to my kid or some child, I shouldn't be. But rather than asking for help to figure out, you know, what can I do differently, right? It's like they keep doing it, then it's it's not a good excuse. And so you just say, okay, well, I know my parents did the best they can, but I still need to deal with this. Yeah. It's not about blame. It's about accountability. Yeah. So many great (laughs) one-liners. Lizzie, you good? Yeah, lovely. Okay, okay, good, 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 good. Thank you so much for your question. Uh, Charlie, I see you have your hand up. Would you like to ask a question? Uh, Yeah, uh, thanks, Malia. Thanks, Mark, for your service. And uh, it's great to see you, Malia. It's been a long time, but you look wonderful. And uh, yeah, it's nice to hear your voice and, uh, and see you again. Um, boy, uh, a lot of, lot of things I can relate to. Um, I'll try to be brief because I know we're kind of over time here and all. Um, I definitely can relate to seeing, uh, drunks in the emergency room. Um, I've certainly worked in that environment, uh, plenty of times hung over and it really helped my denial because, you know, somebody that's handcuffed to a wheelchair with vomit all over themselves passed out, uh, you know, that's, in my mind, that was an alcoholic. And even though I was an alcoholic in retrospect, I I was just high functioning. And it it really showed me what people can do under the influence. I remember seeing one man, he was really a nice older gentleman and all. Um, He was a prisoner. And, um, you know, I did this whole assessment on him because he was having chest pain and nothing was checking out. So I started thinking, well, maybe it's something emotional. And I asked him, you know, what's going on with you? And he had just been given a life sentence because in a a cocaine, alcohol-induced state, he had shot his wife six times in the face. And I'm looking at this guy in front of me trying to imagine him doing this. But the the behaviors that alcohol and drugs, it just really shocked me. Um, One of the best books I read in the last few years was The Body Keeps the Score. um, Yes. Which was, it was very uh, painful to read just because of the nature of it. But I, I learned that neglect is actually considered a form of trauma. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that, that really kind of resonated with me. Um, I was sexually abused at the hands of my eighth grade social studies teacher. But I never thought of it as uh, particularly bad because he groomed me so well. And I always thought of sexual abuse as some type of violent rape kind of thing. And, you know, I was groomed so well and the process was so gradual and I was so unsupervised at age 14 and so hungry for an older man's attention that um, there was also, he introduced me to marijuana and alcohol and um, I don't know, there was just kind of a lot of male bonding in a weird sort of way. So I kind of went on and didn't think a lot about it until I was five years sober and the Jerry Sandusky case broke. Remember the uh, football coach? That was like in about 10 years ago, 2013. And I was in therapy in five years sober. And I remember telling my therapist about the sexual abuse because I had never really talked to anybody about it. And it was amazing how I was minimizing all these things that were going on. 
And I'm saying, yeah, there was nudity and he touched my genitals, but, you know, his hands weren't on me for that long. And yeah, he masturbated in front of me, but, you know, I didn't have to do anything. And my therapist is like mentally shaking me going, don't you understand? <laughs> you were sexually abused. And just like the last speaker said, just this anger just welled up in me. The more I thought about it and the more I thought about how I was exploited and how he, he took a certain amount of innocence from me. I, I was just so furious about it. So I can definitely relate to that. And the last point is, uh, there. I think it was in the Body Keeps the Score, but there's a term called post-traumatic growth, which I yeah. think you've illustrated really well. You you took all that that anger and all that motivation and you started a, a center for uh, sexual assault victims. Well, what a wonderful use of, of trauma. So congratulations. No, thank you. So I, I just want to say, I love that book. The Body Keeps the Score. I, it is I, a wonderful book. Sorry, I'm Philomena. Oh, sorry, I was, I, yeah, I, I'm so sorry, Philomena. I was muted when I spoke. Oh, uh, Philomena, you're next. Your hand is raised. Please take your question. Thank you so much. I, thank you. I'm Philomena and I'm an alcoholic. I was a grace of God in the fellowship. I'm sober today. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah. Yes. I don't know whether this question is appropriate or not. Um, I I was in the bar business for 30, for 34 years, my husband, myself, and I adopted two of my children, and I was spoiled all my life. My mother died when I was very young, and my aunt and uncle reared me, and everything had to be kept lovely for Phil, and I was never able to deal with anything. And then I adopted my two children, and I really didn't look into that well. My husband was a wonderful man. You know, he was very intelligent and that. And he kind of took over everything. And it was a shock to my system when I got the children. I wasn't able to mind them. I just wasn't. I was afraid. I was in fear. And my son, uh, I, I won't stay too long. That My son was the one I cuddled an awful lot. And everything had to be rosy for him. And if he played uh, soccer I, and he got it, he'd ring me up and say, Mom, I don't like it. And Mom would be in there to collect him. I didn't want him to get dirty. I, I just wanted him to keep him all to myself. My daughter did was different. She went off with her dad, went horse riding and all that. And today she's um, a consultant in nephrology and her husband's a neurology. But my son, uh, I remember when he was about... I'd say he was nine months and we never, my husband and I never fought, only me drinking. And I remember coming over, passing a lake and I was drunk and my little son was in the back of the car and he was in one of those seats. And I got out of the car and I went to drown myself and my husband followed me. Now that was the first time I'd say my little son had. The second one was, I can remember, we in the kitchen and he came home from the bar. We had a bar and restaurant. He said, you're drinking. And he started to shout at me. And I remember my son, he was about two. He put his two hands to his ears and he said, stop, stop. Right. As the years went on, my drinking got worse. And my husband used to try and hide it from the children. But my son was always very anxious. And then as he grew up then 15, 16, he'd come down the stairs in the morning always very full of anxiety and tell, uh, no talk or say nothing, where my daughter would say, why are you drinking so much? You upset dad. You know, she'd, she'd fight with me and I'd say, well, I promise I won't drink anymore. My son never said a word to me all the years. 
a, a wonderful boy. He's a great job in, in, in computers, but always very in on himself, like wouldn't speak. But now he's a great personality with people. If he likes them, he'll speak. If he doesn't, he won't. And as the years, my my husband, got, I, I'm sober now eight years. Sorry, seven, going on seven years. And my husband got sick three and a half years ago. And I minded him. And he minded us all, all the years. My children never came to me for a direction or it was always dad they went to. They take no notice of me because my husband would say, you're drunk, go into bed and sleep it off. But I was a kind mother. I, I, they had everything material. But we had all the parties there with the children. We always wanted to know where they'd be. And mom would go down in the middle of the parties and sit with them. And I'm sure he was very um, embarrassed over that, you know. My daughter got over it. So at this stage now, my husband died a year ago and my son was very good and polite at the funeral and everything and did the gentleman way because he's a pure gentleman. And after my husband died, he wasn't coming out. And I said, what did I do to him? And he texts me <clears throat> and he says, do you realize the concept? Now, he never said answer to me all the years. Gave me flowers for my birthday, cards, but never was verbal to me too much. It was always with dad. He'd come in the door to visit her to his own house and I'd, go, and I'd be cooking and I'd go in and he'd head into dad in the sitting room. Dad was very, very intelligent and talk to him a lot and I'd go in and I'd feel in fear and I'd say oh Garrod I didn't know you were in and he'd say hi never insulted me I used to give him a kiss going out the door and the holy water and one day he turned to me and he said don't you do that to me anymore so I stopped doing that and I cried and I'd finish with this and then he texted me one day after dad dying and I said what did I do to you Garrod and he said, do you realize the consequences you caused me when you were drinking when I was nine and ten? And I was shocked and I can put my hands up and I said, yes, I drank a lot and things I don't like. I did, but not to my children. I was always very good to my children, but they were always if we went to restaurants or anything like that, they'd often leave the table because mom would have a few drinks and she'd have a go at the waitress or all this grandiose about me, you know. And uh, so anyways, I went, I, I was shocked and I didn't go, I don't want to see you anymore, he says. You go your way and I'll go my way. So the members of the meeting told me to leave him and hand him over to God, which I've done. I called mm -hmm. up with his letters and he said, and, and, and I had a present for his birthday. And he says, I, we don't want, I don't want anything from you, he says. I said, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to see you anymore. And I went down the 20 steps heartbroken. So his he, he, he's, he's last Easter then, I got a courier, paid a courier, and sent uh, a, an Easter egg, and an Easter egg for his two cats, his two cats. He's not in a relationship, and I blame myself for that. And I would say, in fear and anxiety. So I haven't heard from him since. Yeah. So would you please tell me, please tell me how I'll handle this. Okay. Well, you know, I think you bring up a really good point, and that is that those of us in recovery who have children, and you know, it's like even if you're even if you were in recovery before you have children, um, it's like we tend to uh, 
And when you're doing this work, it's really easy to start thinking about what you've done to your children and what your how your children are reacting to you. It's really easy to go down that road because there they are right in front of you and they're and you know for the most part they're more real than your own history. What I could tell you Philomena is that you will feel better and you will do better if you do your own childhood trauma work first, before you try and deal with your son. Um, Because, you know, as soon as you start talking, I thought, oh my God, this woman has some really serious abandonment trauma. Her mother died when she was a child. That's abandonment in the most extreme sense of the word. Now, You know, when I said the parents do the best they can and the parents do the best they could, you know, parents aren't trying to die unless, of course, they commit suicide. But parents aren't trying to die and leave their children. It just happens. But the impact is the same. Your mother left you. And you might have been raised by really kind people and, you know, and all that. But your mother left you. And, and those kind of traumas get acted out. Well, number one, you start drinking. And that's a really good way to medicate that. But the other thing is that, you know, it impacts the way that you raise your children. And so before you would start to, to deal with anything around your son, he's going to be around for a while. So, you know, do this work for yourself first, please. And when you find yourself thinking, oh, my God, I did that to my own kid. It's like, well, you know, it's like you might have, but still work on your own stuff first. Do you think he'll come back to me? Will I just leave him be? Uh, Leave him be for now and focus on yourself. Okay, thank you. You Do this work. That's what you need to do. Great stuff. Thank you. Thank you, Philomena. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Donna. And I'm noting the time here. I want to be mindful of that because we do have another meeting coming up. I I do want to say, while this has been recorded, that um, one could listen to this whole talk. And uh, I'm recognizing now that mm, there's some one thing that I would want people to know is that um, by learning what I've learned from Dr. Donna, it provided me, it, it took away the judgment about what parents or care providers or anyone was doing. Like it, it took the judgment away. It, it, it provided a framework mm-hmm. for me to contextualize everything. And that has been profound and powerful just in and of itself. Um, because I, I thought, oh, parents are bad. This is, it's like, it's not judgment. It's not judgment. It's not about being a bad person or anything along those lines, unless it is, um, but largely it's not like, like Dr. Donna said. So that's my 32 cents. I just wanted to chime in because it could, someone could walk away and think, hmm, it's gotta be one thing. And when it's really not, it's not a, a judgment yeah. thing. It's not a judgment. Yeah. It's not that's a fine. blame, thing. it's not a blame game. It's about finding out who's accountable for what simple. Yeah. Yeah, very simple. Okay. Thank you well, so thank much. You much. Thank you. Thank all of you. Pleasure. Pleasure. I'm happy to have you. Right. Hi. I'm sorry. Am I supposed to supposed to go? Yes. Christine. Okay. Pardon. 
Your hand is up. Please ask your question. Thank you. We have just a few more minutes. Um, yeah, I'll try to be brief. Uh, so I'm coming up on three years of sobriety. And just like in this past year, I've been doing like a ton of self-discovery. Um, my daughter was diagnosed with autism when she was three. Um, it's, it was, she had very like diagnostically obvious signs that she was autistic. And so we kind of knew before the diagnosis happened. Um, and by the time she was four, after all the research I'd done, I discovered that I was autistic as well. I got my own diagnosis about three months ago now. Um, and it's bringing up a lot of just like past trauma uh, that I didn't realize because I had very emotionally immature parents. I really owed a lot to that. The, my parents had a need to have, have, you know, their kids be the way they wanted them to be in order to be okay, if that makes sense. Um, And so like, I would get yelled at for not being able to meet their expectations. And I just couldn't understand why I couldn't do the things that other people found so easy. Um, one of my dad's big thing was to say, play the game. And I had no idea what he was talking about because uh, I'm just very direct. And he would just say, play the game. And I wasn't able to do that. Um, I didn't even know what game he was talking about. Like, it was one of those phrases. Where I was just like, OK, I don't know what to do. And I remember just feeling lost, like, all my life up until this point. And I'm just, so I'm doing a lot of work in trying to heal that by creating a space where my daughter can be herself. And mm-hmm. not have such so much of a pressure to be something that she isn't, because I didn't get that. And in doing that, it's been very healing in a way because I'm kind of reparenting myself with the knowledge that I have today. Mm-hmm. Um, the hardest thing for me, though, is just like things coming up out of the blue. Um, like I'll be using a fork and eating lunch, you know, and I'll be like, "Oh yeah, I remember that time that I got yelled at for eating wrong." Um, mm-hmm. And just like little things like that will come up and it all makes sense. Like now, you know, having the information I have, but there's just like a constant overflow of information when I, when I, when I remember stuff and I'm, I'm like just trying to work through it one at a time, but it's all, it all feels like it's bombarding me at the same time. And, and then I get overwhelmed and and burnt out by my own (laughs) recovery process. So what what I would suggest uh, you know, I, I'd like to suggest that every time something like that comes up, write it down. And, mm-hmm. you know, in in my book anyway, and, you know, it's, it gives you an opportunity to actually, you know, it's like you can write it down and then you can do something with that to take the energy out of it. Mm-hmm. Like that's, yeah, And that's one of the ways that you don't get overwhelmed. It's like, okay, it's in my brain. Now, now it's on the paper so I can move on, right? Oh, here's another one in my brain. Now it's on the paper. I can move on. And there's a process that you can work through that. Hmm. So that you can get on the other side. I mean, it's about working through it, getting to the other side. Okay, so when you say working through the process of it, like, so you write it down and then, like, I guess, process your emotions by... By, uh, well, you know, if you go if you go to the book, it gives you more information about how to manage that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, we are at the top, just just past the top of the hour, uh, and we're going to wrap this up. Oh, we've got 
one hand raised, and I, I do want to honor uh, the music meeting. Um, Mark. <laughs> 